Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Good morning. Uh, for those of you guys that are, uh, I see a few faces that might just be visiting us this morning. My name is Chris. Uh, I'm the founding pastor here at King's Cross. And uh, we, uh, we started this church with a desire to, to just uh, search the scriptures uh, and, and be a faithful New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Uh, living for the glory of God and, and, and the good of others. Uh, and so it's good to be with you guys. Uh, we're glad that you're here, uh, and uh, we're just uh, excited to, to, to be together. Uh, I spent earlier this week, uh, I was up in, uh, in Reno uh, for a, a conference with our, our, our church planting uh, network. Uh, which one of my, my wife's uh, fr- friends found hilarious. They're like a pastor's conference in Reno. Uh, but uh, uh, Oscar and I were, were out there uh, earlier this week. Uh, and uh, for those of you guys that have been uh, part of King's Cross since we, we started and started uh, planting this, this new small church plant, um, I just want you guys to be encouraged that uh, I met like dozens of people uh, out in Reno from churches all throughout the nation that have been praying for us that have been supporting us, that have been cheering us on from afar. Uh, at one point, uh, they showed this video to highlight uh, the great work that God is doing like in and through our church. And uh, they invited us to stand. Uh, and then like a thousand people just prayed for us, prayed for you guys. Uh, and I was so encouraged by that. Uh, and, I, uh, and if this is your church home, like, I hope you, you feel that encouragement uh, two. Uh, and so let me pray for us. Uh, let me pray for our time in God's Word, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Lord, Lord, we, uh, we're grateful to be together, uh, to participate in this, in this great mission that, that uh, you're accomplishing for your glory throughout the world. Uh, and so uh, we open your Word now uh, to hear from you to learn from you, to encounter Jesus on these pages. Our Lord and Savior, it's in his name we pray. Amen. So there's this, uh, there's this one night, there's this one night uh, early on in like my, my college ministry days. Uh, I became a Christian uh, in college. It was about 15 years ago, my early 20s. Uh, uh, there's this one night that our college group was hanging out that just kind of got, got seared into my memory. Uh, we were uh, at this uh, bonfire at Aliso uh, Creek Beach, and it was one of those like rare summer nights where it was just especially cold, like, like really, I think the water was down into the 40s. Uh, it hasn't been like that in a while. I think the last couple of years, the lowest it's gotten has been like in the, in, the, in the low 50s, I think. But this particular night, the water was like in the 40s, and a few of us guys uh, thought it would be a good idea 
to sort of like uh, flex our, our, our bravery and jump into the cold water out of a dare to see like whose nerves uh, could brave the cold. And so we dove in, uh, a few of us, and uh, you know, I hunkered down in the water. I was waiting out there, and, and everyone else, like all the other guys that, that, that jumped in with me, they started darting back to the shore because uh, they couldn't handle it. <laughs> and, uh, and like an idiot, to gloat and sort of flex my resilience as the lone guy out in the water, uh, in a swell of pride, I decided, I was like, you know what, I'm going to swim out farther. I'm going to swim out farther than all these other guys, and I'm going to just, I started floating on my back, uh, uh, just kind of flexing my resilience, floating on my back, just thinking like, hey, look, this is no big deal, right? No big deal until I, I propped my head back up and couldn't find the bonfire at the shore. I swam out, uh, was on my back for a while, and then when I finally propped myself back up and my ears came up out of the water, I looked towards the shore and I could not find where this bonfire that like 30 people were at, uh, I, I, I just couldn't see it anymore. I realized now that my head was up that I was actually drifting down the shore. I was drifting south. I got caught in this rip current. I was going like pretty fast. And at this point, I mean, I could feel the water pulling me and the waves start crashing harder. And so every time that I try to like gasp for air, I start getting like seawater instead. And, and it seemed like every yard that I swam forward towards the shore, I got pulled a few yards back and further south. And this aggressive sort of dance with the waves just continued on for so long that my legs started to cramp up. I was just tired. I was struggling for air because the water kept getting, getting in my face. And, and I got to this point where I'm just like, man, I just want to give up, right? I just want to give up. And, and for the first time in my life, I had this keen sense of just the ocean's awesome power. I was actually at the mercy of the ocean. I mean, at this point, like the, the current was so strong that I'm, I'm like, man, I feel like I just want to let my body go limp and, and wait for the ocean. Like the only way, because every time I pushed harder, it seemed like I got pushed back, back more. I was like, I, and I'm starting to run out of energy here and, and run out of uh, 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 just air and, and, and my, my legs are cramping up. And I was like, I feel like I just need to rest, let my body go limp and, and hope that uh, eventually it, it slows down or pulls me closer to the shore on, on, on its own. I was at the mercy of the ocean. So tired that uh, I just waited until I, my body just caught a wave and, and it, that, that, that took me to, to shore. Now, what I experienced that night, that night like 15 years ago in the ocean is a type of potent, tangible power uh, from the water that has just left its mark on me ever since. I think about it every time I swim in the ocean now, and this, like, it's left its mark on me. That power has left its mark on me. And in the same way, in Haggai 1, what we see is that God's people have been confronted. And the Spirit of God opens the eyes of God's people to see His power that they once knew but had at this moment forgotten. 
that power suddenly becomes potent to them. It suddenly becomes tangible to them again, and then it leaves its mark on them. They walk away changed. Uh, to review, what we saw last week when we started Haggai is that in, in the beginning of Haggai 1, the people of God, they've been restored to their homeland. After being in exile for many generations, they're restored to their homeland, and then they're told they're given this calling to rebuild, to rebuild their faith, to rebuild their worship. But instead of doing that, instead of rebuilding the house of the Lord, they're caught building their own houses. Instead of establishing his glory in the land, they're building up their own glory in their own castles and kingdoms in their communities. And then comes Haggai this prophet of the Lord, sent by the mercy of God with a message to confront the people. To essentially say, really? <laughs> like, really? Like, like, God did all of this for you, and, and, and this is how you're spending your time? Like, really? And then he calls them to return to kingdom priorities, to not build up their own castles, but to build up the house of God, a, a place where they can grow in what it means to know him and what it means to make him known to the nations. And this morning, we transition now into verse 12, where we see how these people respond to that message. In verse 12, we see how the people respond to Haggai's charge. I want you to read this verse with me. Haggai comes with this message, and it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, who was sort of like the, the civil leader, and Je Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, he was the religious leader, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, Everybody who, were, who came back to the homeland, with all the remnant of the people, everyone, what does it say? Obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord God had sent him. And look at what it says at the end of verse 12. It says, and the people feared the Lord. They respond by fearing the Lord. And this is a concept that we're going to be unpacking this morning. And so that's our, our first point that I want us to look at. What is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is a major theme all throughout the scriptures that gets easily misunderstood, right? Like people today, we get uncomfortable when they hear about the fear of the Lord. But, but there used to be a day and age when calling someone like a God-fearing man or woman, like that, that was a compliment. A way of saying, hey, this is someone that takes God and the things of God seriously. Someone who makes much of him. But you don't, you, don't, you don't hear that anymore. It makes us uncomfortable. Like some think it doesn't sound nice, right? Like fear of the Lord, like no, I don't like That's how Old Testament God works. I like New Testament God better. How he mellowed out and settled down after he had a kid, right? But you'd have to ignore like huge chunks of the Bible if you want to avoid the fear of God in the Scriptures. It's in there hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. Look at Proverbs 9, verse 10, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. 
And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In other words, if we want to know anything that is true, good, beautiful, and wise about the universe that we exist in, then we need to start here. We need to start with this understanding of what it means to fear God rightly. And to be clear, there's a way to, in which we can fear God in an unhealthy way, right? Like that's why, why John says uh, that, 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 that perfect love casts out fear. There's a sense in which we shouldn't fear uh, God. But there is, according to Proverbs 9, a sense in which the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. A place that we need to start. Not only is it the beginning of wisdom, but, 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 but John who, though John, the one who, who wrote perfect love casts out fear, he also said that this is something that we're going to do in heaven. Fearing the Lord is something we're going to do for all eternity. In, in Revelation 19, he's got this vision of, of what, 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 what the end of all time is going to look like when Jesus returns and we're all at the wedding supper of the Lamb, worshiping him. And then this is how he describes that moment in Revelation 19. He says, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. All you his servants, everyone who's served Jesus as Lord, are those who fear him, both small and great. So what is the fear of God? What is this, this controversial sort of, sort of a theme that we see in Scripture? What is the fear of the Lord? Here, here's a definition of fear that I think will help us understand the fear of God. Fear is something, uh, to fear something is to give credence to its power over you. That's what it means to fear something. It's when we give credence to, it's when we acknowledge the power that something has over us. That's what it means to fear something. Not just fear God, but just to fear anything. When you fear something, as you give, you're giving credence to, you're acknowledging that this thing has power over you. That fear, might, 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 that might be real power. It might be uh, a false power. But whenever you fear something, like that's what's happening. You're acknowledging the power that that thing has over you. Like when we were young and small, we had all kinds of fears, right? Fear of the dark, fear of heights, fear of spiders, of bugs, fear of cooties, <laughs> right? And when you're fearing any of these things, what's happening as a kid? You're saying, man, this, the darkness has power over me. Bugs have power. Heights have, like, the, 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 the prospect of possibly falling, this, is, this it has a tangible power over me. And then we fear. What about now as adults, even as grown adults, we have fears. The fear of loneliness, fear of public speaking, maybe fear of the ocean. And what happens when we, when we fear these things, when we fear something like public speaking, what we're saying is, that, man, this, this, this thing has power over me. And when you fear God, when you fear God in a biblical sense, what you're doing is you're acknowledging the awesome power that he has over you. And the smallest glimpse of his majesty 
just makes you tremble. But in a strangely comforting way, because you know that in Jesus, he's in your corner. That's what it means to fear the Lord in a biblical sense. There's a great picture of this in the Chronicles of Narnia in Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Um, if you're familiar with the stories, you've got this, this lion named Aslan who's sort of like the Christ figure in the story. He's this, this bold, strong, like glorious lion, and all the other characters and creatures throughout Narnia, they sort of experience this tension when they're around him. They experience this tension on, on the one hand, like they, they tremble before him, but on the other hand, they find great comfort in him. And I want you to read this excerpt from, from Lion, Witch, in a Wardrobe when it de- de- describes this tension that they have. It says, uh, uh, but as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children, they didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible or fearsome. They think that something can't be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes, and they found that they couldn't look at him, and they went all trembly. You see, on the one hand, Aslan makes them tremble because he's great and he's awesome and he's fearsome and powerful. But on the other hand, the most beautiful and secure place they could ever be is by his side because he's also good. Living in that tension is what makes him beautiful and supremely unique. Living in that tension of the fear of God is what makes the Lord so beautiful and supremely unique. Every creature in Aslan's kingdom feels the weight of both his greatness and his glory and his goodness. He's not a tame sort of good. He's a fearsome good. You see, there's a difference between a person who merely knows about God's power and greatness, like a theologue who loves to study theology and just like all the incommunicable attributes of God, right? And and there's a difference between a person who merely knows these things about the power of God and his greatness and his sovereignty and his immutability and his impassibility, a person who just knows about these things and, ha- and there's a difference between that person and a person who actually just has a tangible sense of it to where it moves you. You can feel its weight. You can taste his glory. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's a truth about God that is felt that makes you tremble on the one hand, but comforts you on the other hand. And look, that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for us, is that the fear of God would become more than a doctrine that you know about in your head, but that you'd actually feel its weight. That you'd actually feel its heaviness, and, and, and it changes you. I mean, there's a tendency sometimes like in churches that where we want to we shy away from the bigness of God, just the greatness of his justice and his power and his awesomeness, right? We want to reduce Jesus to just like our homeboy. 
It's like, man, no, he's our awesome and fearsome Lord. But he's also better than a friend, closer than a friend. And it's actually because of his greatness, it's because of his otherness from us, his holiness and his justice, that actually makes his love so amazing. And unlike anything else, it's actually what makes his love something that woos us. Man, I've said this before, but whatever your view of God is, but when you walked into the room this morning, it's not big enough. Whatever your view of God is, is it's not big enough. Everyone in the scriptures that we read about who has ever seen him with their own eyes, even caught a sliver or a glimpse of his majesty, everyone that we see in scriptures that, that, that catches a glimpse of him, their mind is just blown. They fall on their faces and they say, I've never seen anything like this before. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when he catches a glimpse of the Lord in the temple, he, he just falls on his face and he says, Woe is me. John the Apostle, who considered himself like the favorite of Jesus, he's like, I'm Jesus' beloved. When he saw a vision of Jesus in Revelation, he fell on his face as though dead. That's what the fear of God is. It's acknowledging his power. His majesty and his glory over us. This is the only right response to the Holy One. That is why Solomon says that this is the beginning of wisdom. You want to understand anything about God in his greatness, in his justice, in his holiness, but also in his love and his grace and his mercy? You need to start here with a healthy fear of the Lord. And so with that, point number two, how does this change us? How does this change us? I mean, if you've, re- if you've kind of been gra- gr- gr- like grasping the fear of the Lord, like then, then man, like you're kind of thinking like, man, I feel like it's changing me already, right? But I want us to see specifically from this text how the fear of the Lord should change us. If you acknowledge God's power over you, What effect should that have on your life, on your relationship with him? And so first we see is that it convicts us with his word. If we have a proper posture, view of God, then we will be convicted by his word. We saw this in verse 12. I want you to revisit that with me. In verse 12, it says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. So what did they obey? They obeyed the voice of the Lord. They obeyed the words of the prophet of the Lord. You see, if you have a healthy fear of God, if you acknowledge the power that he has over you, how will you view then his word? When Haggai confronted the people and said, Yo, why are you guys like working on hanging out in your paneled houses, your upgraded crown molded like houses, when 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 the, the, the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord remains in ruins. When Haggai confronted the people, 
They didn't laugh at him or scoff at him. They, they responded the way that humble children should, with conviction, with repentance. I want, I want you to see something key here. Notice it doesn't just say that they obeyed the voice of God. Like, it doesn't say they obeyed the voice of God. It says they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. It also says they obeyed the words of Haggai as the Lord their God had sent him. Why is that significant? It's because that phrase, the Lord their God, has a special meaning for God's covenant people. Ever since God has been kind enough to reveal himself to them, speak to them in written form, from the moment that Moses led them out of Egypt, the written word has been central to the people of God. The written word was so important that his first written words, God's first written words to his people were inscribed by his own finger in the Ten Commandments. And, and when he inscribed it by his own finger, he started with this declaration that we read in Exodus 20. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. God. So do you know why they didn't brush off Haggai when he came with hard words for them, but obeyed instead? You know why they did that? It's because they understood who this God was that was speaking to them. They understood his power. They understood his law. They understood that this God is the one who made them, the one who delivered them. They understood there is power in God's word. They saw a glimpse of God's glory when Haggai the prophet came to speak to them, and so they were convicted under the weight of his word. When you understand who God is and when God speaks to you, what other response is there? Other than conviction and repentance. Think about the power of God's voice. In Ezekiel, in Ezekiel and, and in Revelation, the voice of the Lord is described as roaring waters. Have you ever heard roaring waters? Like, have you, have you ever stood by the edge of a river or under a waterfall? That just that sound, that, like that, that loud, roaring water sound? It's just the sound of sheer power. Loud, white noise. It's the sound of sheer power. God's voice is like that, Ezekiel says. John says in Revelation, God's voice is just like that. It's the voice that spoke the first words in the universe. Let there be light. And then what happened? What happened when those words were uttered? Before those words were spoken, there was nothing, just this huge void. There was a big vast of nothingness. We, we kind of talked about that a little bit last week. But then what happened after those words were uttered? That command was spoken, let there be light. Then there was light. There was light. Try to understand the mechanics of that one, the physics of that one. Something came out of nothing because someone spoke it into being. That doesn't happen. 
That doesn't happen, but, but that happened because God's voice is powerful. He created the universe with a song, with his voice. So what, what does this have to do with Haggai? What does Genesis 1, let there be light, have to do with Haggai? It's when the people heard the voice of the Lord their God. They knew the power of that voice. And that's why they obeyed. You know what? It's, it's worth mentioning that, that that same power, that same voice, is embedded on the pages of scriptures that, that we hold. That same power flows through the Bible that we have in our laps or on our phones. There's power in those words. God sent a single prophet to these people, to this remnant, so that they would know his will. We have more than that. We have all the prophets, all the apostles, every letter, every poem, every proverb, every historical account. And if your heart is humble in the fear of the Lord, then you'll be ready to receive the word of God like they did. You'll care less about what you think and more about, hey, what does God think? You'll care less about what, what it is that you feel that you want to do, that you should do, and you'll want to learn what God would have you do. Any attempt to knowing God and following Him that doesn't include the truth of His Word will be vague at best. And so if you want to know God, you get acquainted with Him through His Word. If you want to enjoy God, you, you treasure him through his promises. If you want to know God's will for your life, which is the one question nine on every human heart, what am I here for? Then read the story of humanity in the scriptures. Find out who Jesus is, how he makes sense of this all. And that's why each week we walk through this book. We walk through the scriptures. That's why we sing truths from this book. And that's why we feast on the message of this book, the gospel, when we take communion. So if you have a healthy fear of God, you will find conviction when you open up his word. Secondly, you'll also find comfort in his presence. Read Haggai 1 verse 13 with me. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, he spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. You see, here we see that with the fear of God comes the great comfort of God. This is the comfort of his nearness, the comfort of his mercy, the comfort of his grace. They had turned their hearts away from their God after he even brought them back. They had turned their hearts away from their God, yet here they find that his heart has always been turned towards them. I am with you, declares the Lord. God spoke to them not only with the confrontation of the law, but also with the comfort of his grace. I am with you. You see, a proper <clears throat> fear of the Lord is not a crippling fear. That kind of fear is not biblical. A crippling fear is not biblical. It's not informed by the fullness of who God is. 
Maybe, maybe if you have a crippling fear of God where you feel like you need to run from him and hide from him, uh, like he's this, 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 this angry judge, like always out, out to get you. If that's your only view of, of God, then, then your view of him is not formed by the, the fullness of his character, by the whole of the scriptures. That kind of fear is not a biblical fear. It's not informed by grace. The fear of God and the forgiveness of God actually go hand in hand. The fear of the Lord and the mercy and love and grace of God should go hand in hand. Here's how we know that. Look at Psalm 130 with me. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, the psalmist says, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, if you, Lord, if you marked iniquities, if you took, kept track of all of our sins, if you knew, know them, then... Which one of us could stand? Who could stand? Look at verse 4. He says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isn't that wild? He says, With you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Here's what the psalmist is getting at. He's saying the forgiveness of God when you truly understand who God is over you, when you get a glimpse of who he is and when you understand what it means to be forgiven by this God, that should drum up such profound awareness of how great his grace is, about how grand his majesty is, the majesty of his mercy and his kindness that should just leave us to stand in utter awe. There's forgiveness in you that you may be feared. You see, that's exactly what happened in Haggai 1 when God's once so disobedient people heard him say, I am with you. I am with you. It just blew their minds. It floored them. God, you're with us? Even when we turned our hearts away, even when we turned our eyes away from, from you, you're still with us? That is the comfort of his presence. It is fearsome grace. It is powerful mercy. It shows us that we are loved not because we are worthy, but we are loved by the one who is supremely worthy. When the God who made everything in the universe and the one who owns it all, when he says, I am with you, that will give you great comfort. You'll find great comfort in his presence. So the fear of God, it convicts us with the word, it comforts us with his presence. And then thirdly, I want you to see lastly, that it compels us to obey his commands. It compels us to obey his commands. Where do we see this? Verse 14 through 15, the end of the chapter. Read it with me. It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Je Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And then they came, they all came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius uh, the king. 
By the way, that last verse, the reason that's helpful for that to be is that, man, this is, this is history. This is history. I mean, if you've actually ever studied world history uh, and, and, and uh, the, the, just the history of the, the Medo-Persian Empire, like you can, you can see record of this temple being built. You don't have to go to the scriptures for that. You can look at secular, like geographical resources uh, to see that in the 24th day of the month, in the sixth day, in the second year of Darius the king, this happened. This happened. The nation of Israel, they came back under the leadership of Joshua, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. There's a guy named Haggai that came and they rebuilt this stuff. This actually happened. In particular, let's focus on the end of verse 14 when it says that they actually came, they responded, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Verse 14 says that their hearts were stirred to do this. You see, this was the mission that brought him back here in the first place. Rebuild the house, rebuild their faith, rebuild their worship. This was the mission that they were sent back for. They were ignoring it, we saw in the beginning of the chapter. They'd been ignoring it for about 15 years. But now, now with the Spirit of God stirring them uh, to him, now in the fear of the Lord, with the glimpse of his majesty, with the right posture before their Lord, their God, now they obey. Now they're all in because God is with them. I love this reflection from my friend, uh, PJ uh, Tobayan. Uh, he's a, a pastor uh, up, in, up in LA. Uh, he posted this. I just saw this like late at night on, uh, on, on, on Facebook. Uh, he was like, here's... Here's a definition of the fear of the Lord I've been working with. And I was like, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm using that tomorrow, but he, it, was, it was really good. He says, the fear of the Lord is a deep respect for who God is, which liberates the will to do all God says. The fear of the Lord is a deep respect for who God is, which liberates the will to do all God says. You see, if your idea of the fear of God is 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 is, is that we, you know is that we constantly obey Him like out of guilt, then man, you don't really understand the fear of the Lord. That's a fear of a God that you've drummed up in in, in your mind, but that's not the fear of the God of the Scriptures. No, it's a deep respect for God that actually liberates the will, that actually makes you realize, no, I was enslaved. To, uh, to, to the things of the world. I was enslaved to my own passions and desires as, as Ephesians 2 tells us. I was a slave before. I've always been mastered by something. But now I want to be mastered by the God who liberates me. Who liberates my will to live for His glory, to live for things that actually last for eternity. The things that every single one of us say, like, man, what, why am I here? What is wrong with this world? Why is it so broken? Like, what can I do about it? The fear of the Lord liberates the will to get aligned with that, to do the will of God and, and all that he says. You see, after receiving the word in Haggai 1, the people, they had this renewed respect for who God is. This is the Lord their God. 
the Lord their God, their creator, their deliverer, their covenant God, the Lord their God. And when they received that word, that challenge, that word of grace from him to rebuild the temple, when they received that word of mercy from him, I am with you. They took that to heart. God is with us? They took that to heart, and they were stirred in their spirit, and obedience to the mission of God is what followed. Does you notice that they didn't obey begrudgingly? They weren't like, I guess we got to do this. God's prophet Haggai told us, right? They didn't obey begrudgingly. It says their hearts were stirred. Their hearts were actually engaged in this now. Their hearts were distracted before, but now their hearts are stirred. Now their hearts are engaged in the things of God. The Lord stirred up their spirits to obey. Look, if obedience to God is just unbearable to you, then you haven't grasped the awe of his worth. You haven't truly seen a glimpse of his, of his, of his glory. You see, a healthy fear of the Lord, it compels us. It draws us in. It reforms our hearts to obey him, to follow him, to trust him. Not not in a begrudging way, but in a beautiful way, in a liberating way, where we begin to see that there is only one source of all truth, goodness, and beauty, and it is the Lord our God. And so we follow him gladly. So the fear of God convicts us, it comforts us, and it compels us. Now, what does any of this have to do with us today? Just like the people of God in Haggai chapter 1, by the grace of God, we want to be a people. At King's Cross, we want to be a people who care less about our own personal kingdoms and more about the glory of God and his kingdom. If, a regular, if the regular desire and, and, and desires and decisions of your life sort of just always revolve around you, then your kingdom and your glory and what brings you pleasure, then, then something needs to change. Yet if your joy and if the longing of your souls is for the Lord and for his name to be known, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, then God has changed you. He's at work in your heart. Your life will make much of the glory of God and the good of others. Look, man, Christians in the West, Christians in the West, we often struggling with acknowledging God's ultimate power that he has over us because we feel entitled to all that we have. We look around and we're like, I did this, right? From the roof over our heads to the cars that we've got in our garages, the technology in our pockets, we feel like we did this, we earned it all, and therefore we deserve it all. This attitude, this attitude creeps into our churches. It threatens our humility, and therefore it threatens our worship and our mission and our service. But a healthy fear of the Lord requires that we acknowledge the power that God has over us. To acknowledge it rightly, 
in a way that humbles us and comforts us. To acknowledge the power that he has over us, the power to form us in a mother's womb, like baby joy. The power to to know when we lie down and when we rise up. The power to number our days. The power to enthrone rulers and make kingdoms fall. The power to give and the power to take away. Our God is the one who holds the power to, to save sinners, to reverse the sting of death, to destroy the bonds of sin. He's the mighty Savior and great Redeemer who can soften a stony heart and change it, reform it from the inside out and keep it for all eternity. That's the power of God. So ask this morning, <coughs> will I live for this God? Will you live for this God, the God of the scriptures? Man, there might be some here this morning that like, you, you don't know God in this way. Like Jesus, Maybe you're interested in, in, this, in this whole Jesus thing. You're still kind of checking this out. Um, I love that a lot of people that are in this room, like I know people that are getting uh, baptized in December, when they first walked into this room some months ago, that's who they were. They just had questions, very skeptical, still checking this out, right? And the Spirit of God has done something uh, in them to awaken them to the reality of who He is through the Scriptures. There might be some in this room who are still in, 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 that, in that place. And, and man, my encouragement to you is, would you let the word of God be like roaring waters? Break down the stone around your heart. Soften you. Humble you. And liberate you to know his amazing grace. So that you might live for him. And look, if you live for him, if, if you live for this God, and this goes for all of us in this room, if you live for him, if you know him, then you'll also be compelled to make him known to more people around you. I mean, how could you not? At King's Cross, like if, if, if we fear God rightly, then we will be stirred, we will be compelled in our spirits to spread his glory to strengthen and build up our worship and our witness. Not because we have to, begrudgingly, but because we get to. We're liberated to. And we'll obey his word gladly. And we'll make disciples with zeal. Not because he needs us to, but because we have the privilege of participating in his sovereign work. And if that seems like a high calling, that's because it is. It is a high calling. It is a high calling to join God in the sovereign work that he's been doing throughout history. But man, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that is the mission that you were drafted into. This is the family that you were adopted into. You see, Haggai, he comforted the people with the words from the Lord 
our God. I am with you. I am with you. You know where else we see that promise? The words of Jesus. The words of Jesus in Matthew 28. What theologians call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I want you to read it with me. Jesus, he's about to leave his disciples. And they're all worried. They're like, what are we going to do without you, Jesus? And he, to comfort them, he tells them, and we read about it. And in Matthew 28, 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, here's the promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. Promise from Jesus to his disciples and to his church throughout history. And so this is a promise from Jesus to you, King's Cross. From Jesus, the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. His promise, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who's the one who has all authority in, of the heavens and the earth? Jesus. Verse 18. What does he do with that authority? He shares it with his church, with his disciples, with us. To do what? To make disciples. To multiply followers of Jesus until the day that he returns. Look, if this church, if this church is your church home, talking now to those who call King's Cross their home, if this church is your church home, let me take this moment with these verses in front of us to plead with you. Let's be people who want to make much of Jesus in all that we do. Let's, let's, let's take this promise from Jesus, the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth, that he's going to be with us always, and so therefore go and make disciples. Let's take this promise, this commission, and let's be people who want to make much of him in all that we do. Let's abandon the vain pursuits to build up our own kingdoms and pursue his kingdom. Man, it's easy to get distracted on mission. It's easy to look at your neighbor's house, to look at your neighbor's car, to look at your neighbor's wardrobe in South Orange County and, and, and to say, man, man I, 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 I want those things too. I want to build up my, 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 my resume, my, my, my platform, my, my kingdom. Man, let's abandon those vain pursuits. Let's abandon those vain pursuits and pursue the things that last not only in, in this life, but in the next. And pursue his kingdom. Let's pursue his kingdom. You see, there was a there was a Persian king by the name of Cyrus that 
he was not a believer, but, but, but he, God stirred in his heart to send the people back to this moment in Haggai 1. And he paid the bill for the first temple. A king named Cyrus paid the bill for the first temple. But a king named Jesus paid for the greater temple. And when we make much of this king in the healthy fear of the Lord, we're compelled to follow him and to join in his mission to build a new temple that will be never destroyed, will never be destroyed, his adopted family that's kept for all eternity. What is the one thing that you sense the Spirit of God doing in your heart this morning? What is the one thing that you sense him doing in your heart this morning? Is he convicting you with the power of his word? Is he comforting you with his presence? Or is he compelling you to follow, obey, and join in his mission to build up the church, the greater temple that he's building? See, the temple is no longer a place. It's no longer a location. The Bible tells us that the temple now is the church. It's people. Jesus gave his life so that the old temple, the old sacrificial system, would be fulfilled. The whole point of all that was to point to him and the work that he's doing today. What is the one thing you sense the Spirit of God doing in your heart in regards to him? There's no greater joy, no greater endeavor than knowing and loving and following our good and gracious and fearsome King Jesus. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.